My name is Shane Lewis, and you are listening to Forever on My Mind, Blues Songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. I was filled with adrenaline on stage at around 7 p.m. on Saturday, September 10th, 2022. I was covered in sweat looming over a crowd of people, my voice was shot, and the noise from my amp was screaming in agony. I locked eyes with the drummer and with one final push, I jumped into the air and we both crashed down in a noisy chaos together, with a plastering of cymbals and a massive guitar chord resonating throughout my small Midwestern school's res quad. We had just played a cover of the White Stripes' song Ball and Biscuit, one of our favorite songs to play together. The song is structured in a typical blues chord progression and with predictable, simple blues lyrics, but with a hint of explosion and angst. After finishing our set for the night, we walked off stage for the main acts, Cleveland-based rapper Kip Stone, followed by Brooklyn-based indie band Pom Pom Squad, to take the rest of the night. It didn't hit me until days later that I got to perform as our band's tonal whiplash and howl out one of my favorite songs from my favorite genre of music to a crowd of people on a stage, and that if the opportunity presented itself again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Blues was one of the most important part of 1960s American culture. It was the pop music of the day, and it changed how people listened to and performed music. The entire world was introduced to the genre in its raw, unapologetic attitude, and it perfectly fit into the rebellious nature of the decade. The genre shifted in subject matter and expression as a result of this popularity, and the three musicians' discographies I've analyzed showed how blues musicians adapted. But the songwriting shift during the 1960s does not end with just Sunhouse, Howlin' Wolf, and John Lee Hooker. Many more black male blues songwriters from this same generation wrote about their experiences in the 1960s. For instance, Sunhouse was not the only blues musician to mourn President Kennedy's assassination. Sleepy John Estes, a contemporary of Houses from Memphis, Tennessee, also wrote a song mourning the loss of President Kennedy called President Kennedy Stayed Away Too Long. He cries out that Kennedy was, quote, the best president we ever had, and that, quote, some lowdown took the president's life. Similar to Howes' homage to the president, Estes also empathizes with Kennedy's family and mourns with them. Sunhouse was also not the only preacher that decided to make their preaching into a blues career in the 1960s. Reverend Gary Davis is another example of this phenomenon. However, he differs from Sunhouse in that Davis fully embraced being a preacher. He didn't have the same kind of struggle that House expressed in his songs, and instead was proud of the fact that he was a priest by including Reverend in his stage name. Similar to House, he was from the South and moved to New York around the 1960s. 
Davis was blind, and he played guitar and sang. He melded gospel and blues in a very unique way, and wrote extensive ballads about death, dedication to God, and retellings of various Bible stories. Death Don't Have No Mercy and Samson and Delilah are two of his most famous songs. Another fascinating phenomenon during the 1960s was blues songwriters' bitterness towards rock and roll. In the 1950s, rock and roll acts essentially stole their audience, and blues acts made sure they didn't forget. Once the blues became popular in the 1960s, songwriters sometimes expressed disdain for rock and roll in their lyrics, with songs like The Blues Had a Baby and They Named It Rock and Roll by Muddy Waters and The Twist Ain't Nothing But the Old Time Shimmy by John Lee Hooker. In Mississippi Fred McDowell's 1969 album titled I Do Not Play No Rock and Roll, McDowell speaks before playing on the first track, where he states, quote, I do not play no rock and roll, y'all. I just play the straight, natural blues. Despite the fact that they were popular in the 1960s, blues musicians wanted to tell their audience that they think they got cheated in the previous decade. Booker White was a Delta blues songwriter from Aberdeen, Mississippi, and performed slide Delta blues similar to Sun House. Recorded on an unknown date, at some point he wrote a song called 1963 Isn't 1962 Blues. The song is the same repetitive blues lick the entire song, in which White declares, 63 won't be like 62. The song details some kind of relationship he is no longer in, which was in 1962, but that in 1963, things will change for him. It is hard to interpret this song, as there are no official lyrics or even a confirmed date that this song was published. However, the fact that he is very specific about differences between 1962 and 63 shows that White noticed some kind of change or difference in the world among these years. The Cold War and the fear of nuclear destruction was prominent in the 1960s. One of my personal favorite 1960s blues songs, The Harrowing Awful Dreams by Lightning Hopkins, demonstrates this fear perfectly. Hopkins was a Texas blues guitarist and songwriter who started recording in the late 1940s. He was known for his raw storytelling and booming voice. In this song, from his 1962 album Mojo Hand, Hopkins retells a terrible dream he had. He mournfully asks the listener, quote, Have you ever laid down in your bed and had one of them lonesome dreams? He then states in the second verse that in this dream, it, quote, sounded like the world was coming to an end and that, quote, somebody had passed and dropped a bomb. Afterward, he says that in his hometown, he was, quote, the one to blame and that he doesn't know if he's going to heaven or to hell. The mention of an explosion and a bomb could very much have stemmed from the prevalent idea of mutually assured nuclear destruction in the 1960s. The imagery of a bomb exploding and ending the world is so visceral within the song, and this could have been Hopkins' expression of this anxiety. Despite blues artists leaning into political music in the 1960s, some of the most political ones were not officially released at the time. Tracks such as House's President Kennedy and John Lee Hooker's songs I Gotta Go to Vietnam and This Land is Nobody's Land, for instance, were not released at the time they were recorded. They may have performed these songs live, but these tracks were unknown to fans who only listened to the albums. It is possible that the producers and managers may have been scared to have songs that were too controversial on an album. A lot of these songs were released with remixes and reissues of the albums in the 1990s, and some were not even released until a couple of years ago. A final thing I found fascinating, which I mentioned in the introduction episode, is that quite a few of the songs I've highlighted within this project simply don't have anything written about them. Whether it be from scholars, the biographers, or even the musicians themselves, a lot of these songs I had to interpret on my own because they've not been covered. 
However, because of the versatility of the genre, the lyrics are always up to interpretation and is what makes the genre so diverse and beautiful to me. Many white British and American acts in the 1960s took inspiration or sometimes outright stole from the blues, but quite a few credited their blues inspirations. However, some 1960s acts were infamously not as transparent, such as Led Zeppelin. Willie Dixon ended up suing the band and its estate in the 1980s for stealing certain riffs and lyrics without ever providing credit to Dixon on their albums. Thankfully, Many groups at this time credited their blues inspirations in unique ways. The American band Canned Heat, who played at Woodstock in 1969, absolutely worshipped John Lee Hooker and did a collaborative album with him in 1972. The British band The Animals, who are famous for their cover of House of the Rising Sun, covered many John Lee Hooker songs, including a unique version of I'm Bad Like Jesse James. The Rolling Stones in 1964 were adamant about getting Howlin' Wolf and Willie Dixon on a television special they were filming, as they had recently covered their famous song, Little Red Rooster. The Beatles were heavily inspired by the blues and were quite self-aware, such as John Lennon's satirical track, Your Blues, on the White Album, which poked fun at white British musicians covering the blues. Heavy psychedelic acts like Cream covered classic blues standards, like Sitting on Top of the World or even Robert Johnson's own Crossroads, and always credited the original songwriters or arrangements of their albums. The band Pink Floyd came up with their name from combining two blues musicians, Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, and the list goes on. I should mention as well how important Bob Dylan is to 1960s blues songwriting. On Bob Dylan's first album, which was released in 1962 entitled simply Bob Dylan, he covers a lot of old blues songs in the traditional Delta Slide guitar style, such as the track In My Time of Dying. Along with the blues tracks, he includes songs that stem from the other half of the 1960s folk craze, which are songs written by, related, or dedicated to Woody Guthrie and older folk acts. For a debut album of an extremely prolific songwriter, it is very solid, and it perfectly represents how much the 1960s folk craze was influenced by blues songwriting. As the 1960s progressed and the blues started to take off, Dylan also changed his sound with the changing times. In the middle of the 1960s, Dylan controversially, quote, went electric, and started to play songs with electric guitar and a backing band instead of just him and a guitar. With this change in sound, he released one of his most famous albums, Highway 61 Revisited. Whether his audience knew it or not, this album was one of the most important homages to the blues during this time. The title of the album itself is a reference to Highway 61, which runs through the Mississippi Delta and was near where Delta blues musicians grew up. The highway is mentioned in many blues songs and was extremely important to the blues culture. Out of all the songs in the album that represents Dylan's love for the blues, the track From a Buick 6 has a typical blues song structure and includes lots of bluesy lyricisms and references. On the same album are his well-known masterpieces Like a Rolling Stone and Desolation Row, in which Dylan also paid respects to the blues for inspiring him.
It is no question that with the end of the 1960s, the blues as a popular genre of music died with it. At no other point in history afterward has the heavy, raw, unapologetic blues been the top listened to genre on the charts. But this isn't necessarily a bad thing. And the genre itself never actually died. It just is not as popular anymore. Much like the songwriting itself, the genre itself has evolved and changed over time, and many people have paid respects to it as a whole. Many artists after the 1960s that I love have dedicated albums and songs to blues songwriters. Nick Cave, one of my favorite songwriters of all time, dedicated his second album to the blues. On this album, he completely reimagines John Lee Hooker's song Tupelo into a heavy 1980s goth version. As mentioned in the episode on Howlin' Wolf, the band Swans has an entire song dedicated to Howlin' Wolf and his repetitive and heavy-hitting sound. My favorite genre of metal, doom metal, started from bands like Black Sabbath writing and covering blues songs with dark and satanic themes, such as their track Warning on their first album. The movie The Blues Brothers, directed by John Landis and starring Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, is in my opinion an excellent homage to the blues as a genre. The movie doesn't parody the blues as a genre at all, but rather pokes fun at some of the more ridiculous aspects of it in a very respectful manner. For instance, Aykroyd and Belushi's characters are perfect parodies of white blues musicians who seem to be completely disconnected from the culture of the genre itself and still immensely profit off of it. The film itself even features many blues legends such as John Lee Hooker himself, Cab Calloway, Aretha Franklin, and Ray Charles. Having lived in Ohio for the past four years, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has been one of my favorite attractions to visit within the state. The first exhibitions that one sees on the ground floor is all about the blues. When I went there last summer, I managed to find an instrument or some kind of memorabilia related to each one of the musicians I have analyzed. Musician Jack White, famously known for being in the White Stripes, practically worships Sun House and has covered House's songs Death Letter and John the Revelator while he was in the White Stripes. White has also been extremely valuable for blues recording preservation. His record company, Third Man Records, has reissued many albums by blues musicians from White's hometown of Detroit, including John Lee Hooker. When I was in his record store in Detroit last year, I was impressed that there was an entire section in the store dedicated to these reissued records. It is truly indescribable as to how much the blues really means to me. Growing up, I heard all kinds of blues and blues-adjacent music, such as Ray Charles, Little Richard, The Rolling Stones, Cream and so on. My dad introduced me to a lot of the blues, and right before I went off to college, he bought me my first guitar to learn how to play it. The genre has served as my own emotional expression and songwriting inspiration. As an openly queer person and someone who has struggled with depression and anxiety, the blues is always the genre I go to for playing and for listening. The genre is heavy, emotionally and sonically. A lot of my friends listen to a variety of genres, and it's been fun introducing them to the blues over the years and hearing their reactions to it. If there's one thing that I like people to get out of the genre when introducing it to them is the authentic and unapologetic nature of expression. And the blues is purely that. The blues to me, in the immortal words of Eddie James Sunhouse Jr., will quote, forever be on my mind.
My name is Shane Lewis, and you have just listened to Forever On My Mind, Blues Songwriting in the 1960s, an independent study podcast from the College of Worcester. Thank you to Dr. Jordan Birrell Walters and the History Department of the College of Worcester for supporting and encouraging my creative ideas in creating this alternative IS. Special thanks to all my friends and family members who've listened and will hopefully continue to my endless rambling and discoveries while working on this project. And finally, thank you to Eddie James Sunhouse Jr., Chester Arthur Howlin'Wolf Burnett, and John Lee Hooker for inspiring me with your lyrics and showing me that no matter how blue one can get, everything's gonna be all right.